Luke 19, verse 45. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why didn't you believe me? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John is a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Lord, we ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit to help us understand this, this ancient text, this beautiful story that we've read so many times. Help us to understand it and to apply it, and especially help us to truly see the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How will you respond to the authority of Jesus? That's the big question. That's the big idea I want to pose to you this morning from our text. It's an extremely important question. In fact, that question has eternal ramifications. How will you and I respond to the authority of Jesus? Some people respond to his authority by ignoring it. They just ignore it and go their own way and pretend it doesn't exist. Other people respond to the authority of Jesus by rebelling against that authority. Other people respond by rejecting that authority. And then there's a small minority within the world today that respond to the authority of Jesus by submitting to it. And I truly believe that in the end, it's those people who will be saved. The ones that submit themselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus told a little parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's wise builders and foolish builders. He said the wise man is the one who's building his house on a rock. And when the rains descend, and when the floods come, and when the winds burst and slam against that house, it doesn't fall because it's founded on a rock. It's secure, stable. But he says there's other kinds of people in this world that are like foolish builders. They're building houses too. Everyone's building a house. Everyone. But some are foolish builders and they build their houses on sand. And when the rain descends and the floods come and the winds blow and slam against that house, it falls. And great will be that fall. Now what do you suppose he meant by when the rains come and the, the storm descends and the winds slam against the house? What's, what's that... What's that picturing? I believe it's picturing the judgment. Judgment day. 
everybody's going to face judgment one day, and everybody's building a house. The only question is, will your house stand in the judgment, or will it fall? And did you know there's only one difference between the man whose house stands and the man whose house falls? Jesus said the wise man is the one who hears his words and acts on them. The foolish man is the one who hears his words and does not act on them. In other words, the wise man submits to Jesus Christ and his teaching. The foolish man will not. That's how crucial this passage is. In our text today, Jesus exercised authority. And we'll look at that authority in just a minute. The religious leaders didn't like the fact that Jesus was exercising authority. In fact, he was encroaching on their domain, and they didn't like that one bit. And they tried to find a way, first of all, to destroy him. And then they outright challenged his authority. And as we move through this text this morning, I want to ask three different questions. First of all, how did Jesus exercise his authority? Secondly, how did the people respond to that authority? And then thirdly, how did Jesus respond to the people? Okay? How did Jesus exercise authority? How did the people respond to that authority? And then how did Jesus respond to their response is really the question. So first of all, how, did we, how do we find Jesus exercising his authority? Well, let's go back and remember two Sundays ago, we took a look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, five days before he goes to the cross. And so he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. And as he's doing that, his disciples are taking their coats and putting them in the road. And he, the donkey's riding over those coats. And others are, are cutting down leafy branches and putting them in the road. And others are waving them. And they're all shouting joyfully praises. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, save now, we pray. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And the religious leaders are saying, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop. And Jesus said, if I did that, the rocks are going to cry out. It's no use. I must be praised on this day. It has to be. So Jesus comes triumphantly into Jerusalem among the, the loud shouting and praise of this great multitude of people. He ends up at the temple on that day. And Mark 11, verse 11, gives us a real interesting little insight that we don't get from Matthew, and we don't get from Luke, and we don't get from John. But he helps us here with the chronology. Mark 11, 11, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany and the twelve, since it was already late. Now, if you just read the other Gospels, you'd get the impression that Jesus came straight to the temple and he cleansed it right then. But he didn't. He came to the temple and he looked around. He saw everything that was happening. He saw the money changers. He saw the people selling the doves. He saw the people selling the oxen and the sheep and the goats. He took it all in, very calmly and collectedly, and then he left. And he went back to Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were allowing him and his disciples to stay. Then on the following day, he came back into Jerusalem and he did business in the temple. That's important because it shows us that Jesus wasn't just losing his temper when he cleansed the temple. He wasn't acting impetuously. This is a very settled determination on the part of Jesus Christ to come and actually cleanse out that which was evil in his father's sight. 
Then we come to Luke 19, verses 45 and 46. It says there, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Now, this is not the first cleansing of the temple. We find the first one taking place in John chapter 2, right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So way back at the beginning, Jesus had made a scourge of whips with, with ropes. He, he tied them together very deliberately. He had driven out all the people that were selling oxen and sheep and cattle. He had turned over the tables of the money changers and driven them all out. And then he left Jerusalem and he spent most of the next three years up in the northern area around the Galilee area, the Sea of Galilee, traveling around in that area. He would make sporadic trips down to Jerusalem, but primarily he was ministering in that area. Well, as soon as he left, the priests just brought all that stuff right back in. They set up the money changers. They set up the people selling and buying animals for sacrifice. So when Jesus comes back for this final time, just a few days before his death, he's got a clean house all over again. Now, when you read this story, it sounds like Jesus is outraged. And I think he was. I think there was righteous anger taking place in his heart when he saw what they had done to his father's house, this holy temple. Now, what was the big, you know, why was he so outraged? What, what was the big deal? You, you, you could read this and think, well, that, it doesn't seem so bad to me. Well, let me try to give you a little bit of background on why this was such an, an outrage to his sensibilities. When you went up to the temple to provide sacrifice, you could either bring your own animal for sacrifice, or you could buy one that was already approved by the temple priests. People were coming long distances. You know, they lived all over the, the ancient world, and three times a year the men were required to come up to Jerusalem to attend these festivals. And so it was a hassle to bring animals. They had to drive them along the way. It was much more convenient to buy one right at the temple. But if they took the time to bring their own animal, they could still find it was rejected by the priests once they got there. Because if they examine the animal and found some kind of a blemish or scurvy or spot, they'd say, I'm sorry, it's not qualified. You, you can't offer that animal. Here, if you want to, you can purchase one of ours. But one of theirs was a lot more expensive than one of their own. Because the priests had got to the point where providing these animals was big business. Uh, commercialism ruled the day. Greed on the part of the priests was motivating them to turn this sacred worship of God into a way that they could make money, to line their pockets. And so that was one of the reasons why Jesus was so offended by this. The people, instead of the priests, instead of encouraging the people to worship God purely, were trying to use the people to make money out of greed. The money changers also were in this thing. You see, if the people lived in an area of the ancient world where they used Roman currency and they brought their money with them, they couldn't use that money to buy an animal or a dove or a sheep. Uh, it wasn't permitted because that was Gentile currency. It was polluted. It was dirty money. They had to exchange that money for Jewish money because that was the only money that was acceptable inside the temple. And so guess what the priests did? Well, they had people that would gladly exchange 
Roman money for Jewish money, but they would charge a hefty fee every time that money was changed. They also were getting rich just by changing money. I read this last week that that a dove was very, very cheap. I mean, they were only worth about 10 cents in our money today, but they would turn around and sell a dove for as much as $10, 10,000% increase. So you see what's going on. It's like when you go to the airport and you can buy a Big Mac for three bucks out here and they charge you seven bucks once you get in the airport because that's your only choice, right? So, so that's what's happening. Jesus is outraged because this should be a place of prayer. This should be a, a holy place. This should be a place where people come to worship God. And instead, the temple priests are using it for their own selfish, greedy interests. And so Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11, And he puts them together in verse 46 when he says, It is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer. That's Isaiah 56, 7. But you have made it a robber's den. That's Jeremiah 7, verse 11. God wanted his house, his temple, to be a house of prayer. And Matthew says, for all the nations. God wanted the temple to be a place where all the nations could come and seek the true and living God and find him. A place of prayer. Well, there was precious little praying going on in the temple. It was too loud. It was like an auction. People hawking their wares, come and get your lamb over here. I've got turtle doves, five for $50 over here, you know. And so they have all this cacophony of noises going on. And it was like this, this commercial auction taking place rather than a place where people come to seek God, learn of God, and, and commune with the true and living God. And Jesus even says, you've made it a robber's den. In the ancient world, robbers would hide out along well-known pathways or roads. They would hide behind rocks or trees. And when someone was coming down that isolated roadway all by themselves, they would pounce on them. Well, you, you've heard this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They'd pounce on them and attack them and beat them up and take all their possessions. And then they would go and hide out in some den, some cave. And they'd bring all their loot and store it in these caves or dens. Jesus says, you've turned my temple into a robber's den. You're stealing from my people. And you're amassing these fortunes for yourself. And here it is all around you right here in the temple. This place is a robber's den. It's not my house anymore. And so that's why Jesus was so outraged. He exercises his authority by going to the temple and becoming the master of the temple. It's his father's house, and so he comes to his father's house and he drives out those people who are bringing corruption to that house. But then he also exercises his authority. Look at verse 48. It says they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said, verse 47 says, he was teaching daily in the temple. So not only does he drive out all the people buying and selling and the money changers, but then he comes right into that temple where he's driven them all out and he starts to teach. Now, what do you think those chief priests are thinking right about this time? Who are you to do this? Who gave you the authority to come? First of all, when we told you to rebuke your disciples, you didn't obey us. Well, that gives me the chills just to say that. The creature being commanding the creator to obey them? 
Who are they to command Jesus? <laughs> is really the question that should be asked. But hey, you didn't obey us. And then you come to the temple and you start kicking everybody out. And then you start teaching. Who sanctioned you? The Sanhedrin didn't give you permission to do that. You've not been ordained in the normal channels. You've been to no rabbinical school that's put their stamp of approval on you. Who checked off your theology? And here you come, just on your own authority, coming into the temple and starting to teach. Who do you think you are? That's really how these, these priests and these elders, these, these chief priests, scribes, and leading men were thinking. You see, they said, you know, Jesus, you don't have any jurisdiction in the temple. That's our jurisdiction. We're in charge of that. We're the ones that tell people what they can say in the temple, what they can do in the temple. You didn't ask for our permission. What gives you the right to come in here and do what you just did? And that leads us to ask the question, what kind of authority did Jesus possess? It's true. He wasn't a priest. Well, he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but he wasn't a Levitical priest. So technically, he shouldn't have had authority within the temple precincts. So what gave Jesus the right to come in and do what he did? That's right. He's the Son of God, God the Son. In Matthew 7, verse 28 and 29, after Jesus is done with the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the people were taking note that he spoke with authority, not as the scribes. In other words, he wasn't quoting scribe so-and-so or rabbi so-and-so. He was speaking directly from God, the truth of God. He spoke with authority. Over in Matthew 9, verses 6 through 8, Jesus heals the man, the paralytic, who was let down from the roof down to the ground. And he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your bed and walk. Jesus has authority to teach. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. In the book of John, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the authority or the right to become the children of God. Jesus has the authority to make people into the children of God. In John chapter 5, verse 27, it says that he was given the authority by his Father to judge all men, to be the judge. In John 10, verse 18, Jesus says, I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it back up again. He has the authority to raise himself from the dead. In John 17, verse 2, I'll read this one to you. We have Jesus' high priestly prayer the night before he goes to the cross. Starting in verse 1, he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh. Why? that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Jesus has authority over every person in the world. And God gave him that authority so that he could give eternal life to a select group of people. They're called the ones the Father gave me. Elsewhere in the Bible, they're called the sheep. They're called the church. They're called the bride. And they're called the elect. These are God's covenant people that he chose before the foundation of the world. Jesus has authority over every human being that he might give eternal life to the ones the Father gave him. 
And that's why, after Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to his disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what kind of authority does Jesus have? Well, today, the one risen from the dead, Jesus Christ claims to have all authority. There isn't any authority he doesn't have. There's none that he doesn't possess. He has it all. There there are two Greek words that are similar, but there are some important differences. One is dunamis, and one is exousia. Exousia. You'd spell it in English, E-X-O-U-S-I-A. So dunamis is the usual word for power. It's the ability to do something. Exousia is the usual word for authority. It's the right to do something. You know, Jesus Christ has all dunamis and all exousia. He has all ability. He's omnipotent, can do anything. And he has all authority. So here's the thing. Jesus can do anything he wants to do. Whenever he wants to do it, to whomever he wants to do it, and nobody can stop him. He's not answerable to anybody except his Father, and they're in complete agreement anyway. He is not answerable to us. Isn't it a curious thing? Have you ever thought about this? When you read through the New Testament, and especially the Gospels, you find out Jesus never asked permission to do anything. He didn't need to. I mean, that's like, I, I create this thing, and, that, and I have to ask the thing I created for permission to do what I want. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But even when he sent his disciples to get the donkey, he didn't tell them to ask permission. He just says, go get it. Untie it, bring it back. If they ask you about it, just say, the Lord has need of it. That'll be enough. You know, we we think it's polite to ask permission, and it is. But for the king of creation, there's no need to ask permission of anybody. And Jesus never did that because he was Lord. He was Lord of all. Now, when Jesus does what he does here, the religious leaders are outraged. Because as I've already said, Jesus didn't get their permission to do what he was doing. He's not functioning within the normal channels. Uh, He's not doing what they expect everybody must do. Hey, we're in charge. You follow our directions. Well, Jesus didn't do that. In fact, Jesus was his own authority. Jesus did not go to the Sanhedrin to get his authority or to some human rabbi to get his authority. Jesus didn't go to the lawyers or the scribes or the priests, the temple servants. He didn't go to the Sanhedrin. He didn't go to the Pharisees. He didn't go to the councils. And he didn't even care about popular opinion. It's like, it's just, all that didn't even exist to him. It didn't have a bearing on what he did. He did what he did because the Father told him to do it. And that was good enough. And he had the authority to do it. So this is how Jesus exercised his authority by cleansing the temple, and then by setting up shop and starting to teach the word of God to the people. So how did the people respond to his authority? Well, there's two types of people in this passage. You've got the religious leaders, made up in verse 47 of chief priests, scribes, and the leading men among the people. So a chief priest was one of the supervisory priests that would control what takes place within the temple precincts. Then you've got scribes. Those are the lawyers or the doctors, the experts in the law. And I'm not talking about civil law. I'm talking about the law of God. 
the Mosaic law. They were experts in that law. And then you had the chief people among the people. That would be the elders. Those people probably who are members of the Sanhedrin. So how did they respond when Jesus exercised his authority? Well, we find out. Verse 47 says that they were trying to destroy him. They couldn't do it because all the people were hanging on every word he said, but they wanted to destroy him. They started to plot. They started to come up with a plan. We've got to kill him. He's got to die. We can't let this guy go on anymore. See, he was encroaching on their territory and he was insulting them. He called them serpents. He called them whitewashed tombs. <laughs> he, he said that they were sons of hell. He said that they were robbers. We just read about that. There were thieves who were stealing from God's own people. And he had taken over their domain. And what's even worse, he was getting the populace. The people were going after him. He was becoming more and more popular. And they were having less and less influence and control over the people. And the people were going to Jesus instead. And they couldn't handle that. He's got to die. We've got to get rid of him. We're not going to allow him to exercise the authority that he's exercising anymore. We're going to get rid of him. Now, verse 47 says they tried to destroy him. But if you go to chapter 20, it says in verse 1, they first of all confronted him. King James says they came upon him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who is the one who gave you this authority? In other words, who do you think you are? How do you just go around doing these kinds of things? You can't do that. You're not operating within the normal channels here. So they're challenging his authority. Now, notice what, how the common people responded to Jesus' authority. Verse 48 says, They were hanging onto every word he said. Now they saw exactly the same thing that all the religious leaders saw. They saw Jesus coming in on the donkey. They were there when all the people were shouting and praising him. They saw him come to the temple and cleanse it and drive out all the money changers and the people selling and buying. They were there when he was teaching in the temple, but it didn't affect them the same way it affected the religious leaders, did it? Instead of being all outraged and upset, they're listening. In fact, it says they're hanging on to every word he said. I love that phrase. <laughs> Rapt attention. They're spellbound as the master teacher is instructing them in the truth of God. They're riveted on what Jesus is saying. They're focused. Completely different response to the authority of Jesus, isn't it? Absolutely different response. I just want to ask you this morning, who are you most like? If you had to say, I'm most like those religious leaders when it comes to Jesus exercising his authority in my life, or I'm most like the common people, I really listen to Jesus because he's got something really important to say. Or do I resist his authority when he speaks? Do I even challenge it? Do I rebel against it? I mean, think about it. I don't know if this is true of anybody at this place today, but maybe in your past it's been true that you lived with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And then all of a sudden, Jesus spoke to you in authority by his word. 
And he said, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. You know, it's crazy today. This whole idea of just living together. It's Guys, when I was a kid growing up, people just didn't do that. Or if they did, they were really looked down upon. It's just accepted as like this normal. I, I, and I'm not getting used to it. <laughs> it's, not, it's not normal. It's not right. God's going to judge people who do those kinds of things according to Hebrews 13 verse 4. My own niece was telling me that her boyfriend wanted her to move in with him and she said, no, not until we go down the, the city hall, the justice of the peace and get married. I'm not moving in with you. And he saw nothing wrong with it. People don't, they, they don't understand that it's wrong. Anyways, so let's say that was your position. Jesus spoke to you, an authoritative word. You must repent of that. You can't go on living like that. How do you respond? Do you respond by hanging on to his every word? Turning from that sin? Repenting of that sin? Asking God to work in you to change your life? Moving out of that house that you were living in with that person? And living a pure life unto God? Or do you do what the religious leaders did? Put up a wall. Put up your hands like this. Say, Jesus, you can't do that. You can't encroach on my territory. I, I tell myself what to do. No one tells me what to do. You're not going to tell me what to do about this, Lord. Hey, we're in love. We're in love. This is a good thing, not a bad thing. You know, people have all the excuses they want to do whatever they want. What about if, if you are a wife and you're going through a rebellious period in your marriage and your husband's trying to lead you, he's trying to exercise godly authority, but you won't have it. You won't listen. You won't submit. And Jesus speaks an authoritative word to you. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord in everything. How do you, wives, how do you handle that word? Do you listen with rapt attention? Okay, Lord, you have all authority in heaven and on earth. You have the right to tell me how to live. Okay, it's not going to be easy, but give me the help I need because I want to do your will. That's the godly response, right? The ungodly response is, I'm going to do what I want to do and he ain't going to tell me anything. That's, that's sin. That's ungodliness. What about us, guys? What if, is there ever been a time in your life when you weren't loving your wife the way Christ loved the church? Where you were just neglecting your wife? You weren't giving her the attention that she needed? No date nights. You know, no, no, not carving out time to listen to her, to pray with her, to, to be there for her. Just doing your own thing, selfishly pursuing your own hobbies, your own dreams. And then Jesus comes to us and he speaks an authoritative word. And he says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. What do you do, husbands? Do you respond in repentance? Do you yield yourself to the authority of Jesus? What about you children? Has there ever been a time when you were living in disobedience to your parents? Your parents tell you to go clean up your room. And you say, okay, mom. But you don't do anything. You keep playing your video game. I thought I told you to go clean up your room. Okay, mom, just a minute. Children, that's disobedience. And Jesus has a word for you from the Bible. And that word is, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. If you are a child of God, you'll listen 
and you'll heed the voice of Jesus and you'll put yourself under his authority and you'll obey your parents because he's put them in authority over you. Or let's take another example. Has there ever been a time in your life when you were just kind of feeling a little bit selfish and greedy and you had a little bit extra money, but you knew God is the Lord of all that you possess, but you were taking the monies that he's entrusted to you and you were using them for things that you really didn't need, but just things that you wanted. And you weren't praying about it. You weren't asking him about it. You were just spending whatever you wanted to spend. And he comes to you and he, he, he speaks Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord from your increase and honor him from your first fruits. In other words, the first and the best of all that you have, give back to God. What do you do with that? Do you put yourself under the authority of these scriptures and let Jesus speak to you and you say, okay, Lord, I, I will. I want to. And I find my flesh rebelling, but I want to, Lord. Please give me the grace right now to do your will and to repent and to change. So that's the godly response. The religious leaders didn't have that kind of response. It seems to me that the common people, much more, had that kind of a response to Jesus' authority. I just want to encourage you to be like the common people. You know, I think they probably didn't understand everything Jesus taught them. And I think some of the things that he taught them, they didn't like. I mean, who likes it when Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Those are hard words. Who likes it when Jesus says, unless you repent, you're going to perish. Who likes it when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Stop Seeking first what you want to do. Start seeking first what I want you to do. I am the Lord. You follow me. So some of those things are difficult for our flesh. The flesh wants to do what it wants to do, doesn't it? It's selfish, self-centered. But we have to be willing to surrender our lives to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, how does Jesus respond to the people? We saw how the people responded. Jesus has a counter-response in each situation. Let's look first of all at how he responded to the religious leaders. They confronted him. They said, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who's the one who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and he said to them in verse 3, I will also ask you a question and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven... He'll say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say for men, all the people will stone us to death. For they're convinced that John's a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The first time you read that, you might get the impression, well, Jesus is just kind of evading the question. They asked him a direct question and he doesn't answer them. He asked them a question back, right? Well, I, I think it's more than that. I think Jesus answers another question that if they were honest and answered honestly to that question, they would have their answer. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? It's a no-brainer. All of the people knew the answer to that question. It even says here, all the people believed John was a prophet. God sent John. 
God commissioned John. John was sent from heaven. John was backed by heaven's authority. Well, what did John have to say about Jesus? He said, one is coming after me who is mightier than I. I'm not even willing to stoop down as a slave and untie his sandals and wash his feet. I'm not worthy to be his slave. That's how great he is. All I can do is baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, John, as a prophet of God, was bearing testimony to the exalted greatness and majesty of Jesus Christ. So, if they had an honest heart, and they would say with all the other people of Israel, yeah, John was a prophet, God sent him, they'd have the answer to their own question. By what authority did Jesus do the things he did? God's authority. He was God's Messiah, God's Son, God's Lamb, God's baptizer in the Holy Spirit. So they just weren't being honest with the Lord. But they knew that if they answered truthfully, it was going to incriminate them. You see, they would not be baptized by John the Baptist. The common people came out in droves. All Judea was coming out to be baptized. The Pharisees stood around and watched it, but they wouldn't get baptized. You know why? What did you have to do to get baptized by John? And, and you had to do something with your mouth, too. It said they confessed their sins. Do you think a Pharisee is going to go and confess his sins in front of all the people? No, he's going to say, Lord, I thank you that I'm better than everybody else. You know, I'm not like all these people getting baptized. I'm righteous. They were, because of their pride, they were unwilling to go to John to be baptized. And so they knew that it would incriminate them to say that John was a prophet because they were not baptized by John. And also, they didn't believe John's testimony to Jesus. John said that he was the Lamb of God. They didn't believe that. They didn't accept him as a Messiah. But they also know that if they say, well, John's baptism was just from men, wasn't from heaven, that's going to stir up a hornet's nest because all the people of the land believe he's a prophet of God and they're going to come and stone them. And so looking out for their own best interests, trying to save their skin, now that they're on this, the horns of a dilemma, they say, well, we don't know. When you, when, you, when you can't say one way or the other, just say, I don't know, right? <laughs> That'll save the day. And so they say, no comment. We don't know. How does Jesus respond to them? I'm not going to answer you. If you're not going to answer me, I'm not going to answer you. And I think there's something really deep happening here. This is just a few days before Jesus goes to the cross, and he's saying, I'm not answering you anymore. I've given you truth after truth after truth. For three and a half years, I've been teaching. And you've heard my sermons. You've heard this truth. And you're stubbornly resisting. You're still hostile. You're trying to destroy me. You want me dead. I'm not going to give you any more truth. My lips are sealed when it comes to you. Jesus responds in absolute silence to these guys. He's not going to tell them anymore. This is a mark of divine judgment on the religious leadership of Israel. Judgment. To those who resist the authority of Jesus, judgment comes. But what about the common people? How does Jesus respond to the common people who are hanging on his every word? Look at chapter 20, verse 1. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching, preaching what? 
the gospel. He's not preaching judgment to the common people. He's preaching the gospel, the good news. I, I, I love this. There's only a few days before he's going to go to the cross, and what does he spend all of his days doing? Calling the people of Israel to repentance, calling them to salvation. You, you see his grace here, and his compassion for the people, and his mercy, and his endurance, and his, his longing for their salvation. And again and again and again, he teaches them. In fact, he's going to teach all of chapter 20 and all of chapter 21, two full chapters of teaching before he goes to the cross. His heart is for the salvation of these people. Silence to the leaders who reject his authority, but for those people who hang on his every word, he'll continue to teach. And he's not just teaching anything, he's teaching the good news of the gospel. What do you think that might have included? Now, he, they can't understand the cross because he hasn't gone there yet. But I imagine he's ta talking to them about the kingdom. That's what he's always talking to them about. And he's telling them that he's the king. And I've got a kingdom. Repent for that kingdom's at hand. Come on into the kingdom. And it's not going to be easy, so do violence. The violent take the kingdom by force. Get in while you can. Come into the kingdom. He probably talked to them about sin. The deadliness of sin. The, the, the shame of sin. The ugliness and blackness of sin. And I'm sure he talked about grace, the Father's love, the Father's compassion on sinners, that Jesus, that he came to, came to seek and save the lost. I'm sure that he talked about judgment and hell and heaven and glory. And he talked about these two destinations that all people are going and that he is the good shepherd. And if they'll come under his fold, they will be safe and he will lay down his life for those sheep. I'm sure he talked about all of this. Maybe he reiterated the fact, Come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. So he's preaching the gospel over and over. Now isn't that diametrically opposed responses to these two groups of people? Silence to these and the gospel to these. So as we wind up this message today, I just want to ask you this question. How do you want Jesus to respond to you? Do you want silence? The silence of judgment? Or do you want to Him to mercifully bring you the gospel day after day after day and to continue to speak to you and to continue to entrust the Father's love to you? We have to be like the common people. And that means we have to be willing to humble ourselves and come under the authority of Jesus. We only really have two choices. These two choices are laid out for us in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, God the Father is speaking to God the Son in verse 8, and He says to Him, Ask of Me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And this is what He says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, you know what earthenware is, like a clay pot. You take a baseball bat and rip into that clay pot. In other words, he's going to bring destruction to his enemies. Who are the enemies? They're the people that won't submit to his authority. 
When Christ comes back, he's going to take vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They would not submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. I know there is this raging doctrinal debate today whether you have to come under the lordship of Jesus to be saved or not. I take my side with those who say, yes, you must acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord to be saved. I believe there is no doubt in Scripture about that. If you shall confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you shall be saved. Not just as Savior, not just as friend, not just as one who gives all grace to you, but the one that you come under His Lordship, His authority. So Psalm 2, verse 9, You shall shatter them like earthenware, but then look at verse 12. Do homage to the Son. In other words, bow. Get on your knees. Bow down to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Who's the one taking refuge in Him in this section? It's the one who's doing homage. The one who's bowing. Do you know that word, do homage? It literally means kiss the Son. If you have a King James Version, that's what it says. Kiss Him. Love Him. Worship Him. Get down on your knees and come under His authority. Let Him speak to you and say, Yes, Lord, for your servant listens. That's what Mary said when the angel came. Do thou unto me what you will. I'm I'm just your bondservant. I'm listening, Lord. Do you find that difficult to do? I'm sure you do. I'm not alone in this. Sometimes the Lord asks of me things that I think, oh, can I do that, Lord? That's, that's going to be hard, hard to do. But the beautiful thing about the Lord is He doesn't just command you and then stand far off and say, okay, whoop. <laughs> stand far off and say, okay, go ahead and do it on your own. But He draws near and He extends a hand of help. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. See, Jesus in His grace not only commands you, but He is with you. And His grace will enable you to do all that He commands you to do. He's like that wonderful husband who doesn't just order the wife around, mop the floor, clean the walls. You know, He gets in there and He gets His hands dirty and He helps her do the job. Now, some people look at a teaching like this, and they'll say, Brian, this is heresy. You're teaching salvation by works. You're teaching only people who submit to Jesus are saved. That's a work. And I would beg to differ with that. I don't think what I'm talking about is a work. I think what I'm talking about is the nature of true saving faith. What, what is the nature of true faith? There is a faith that does not save. James chapter 2, 14 to 26. And there is a faith that saves. There's two kinds. There's a notional faith, intellectual belief, and there's the real thing. And I want you to ask yourself, do I have the real thing today? Does my faith in Christ cause me to be willing to come under His authority and obey Him? If I'm not willing to obey Jesus, I don't have saving faith. Now, I'm not saying you're going to obey Him every time, because you won't. We're sinners. We have a fallen nature. We will mess up. We will fall. But your heart is a heart of wanting to obey the Savior. Let me show you. I didn't plan on showing you this, but I think it it fits well. It's Ezekiel 36. 
Ezekiel in the Old Testament is giving this picturesque um, portrait of what it's like for a person to come into the new birth in the new covenant. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36.25, Then I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now that's talking about forgiveness of sin, justification before God, this clean standing. You're, You're cleansed from all your filthiness, right? Well, what accompanies that cleansing? Look at verse 25, or 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you. Cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my ordinances. When God sends his spirit into your soul, that spirit causes you to walk in His statutes and obey His ordinances. See, if you can live in ongoing disobedience to Jesus Christ, that's a really good indication the Holy Spirit's not inside of you. That Holy Spirit's going to be convicting you of sin. He's going to be convicting you of, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And, and you know, we, we meet people all the time who make a profession of faith. I, I think we need to get to the bottom line. Are you submitted to Jesus as your Lord? When He speaks in His Word, do you say, Yes, Lord, your servant listens. How can I obey you today? How can I change my life to line up with your will for me? Or do you find people saying that they believe in Jesus, living together apart from marriage, committing adultery, living in homosexual relationships, lying, embezzling funds, the pattern and habit of their life is ungodliness and sin. They're still slaves of sin, according to Romans chapter 6. The Bible says when you're saved, you're no longer a slave of sin. You become a slave of righteousness. Because the Spirit of God is producing a righteousness in your life. So what do we learn from Luke chapter 19? I believe the Holy Spirit is wanting us to examine our lives today and to ask ourselves... How do I regard the authority of Jesus Christ? Can you answer that? Can you answer that? I'm with the common people. Or would you have to say, there's too many times in my life when I look just like those religious leaders and I'm putting up my hand and saying, Lord, don't touch that area of my life. Don't even touch that because we're not going there, Lord. We're not opening that closet. Off limits, Lord. The child of God can't say that. Our hearts must be open before Him. Lord, I pray that You would Help each one of us to to do business with you in these final moments. And Lord, if there's anything in our life that is amiss, please reveal it to us. Give us the grace to repent this morning, Lord. Help us, Lord, to turn from ungodliness and to turn to righteousness and regard Christ, truly regard Him as King and Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.